We're grateful, our Father, that you are always there for us. Always. We're grateful that you never sleep. We're grateful that you never slumber. We are grateful that you never get fatigued. We are grateful that your attention never wanders from us. We, we are grateful that we always have your undivided attention. Your eye is always upon us. The eye of the Lord is upon those who fear him. On those who wait for his loving kindness. And you have told us, Lord, that in particular, you've said, call on me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. And we are finding ourselves, it seems like, in more days of trouble than we remember from past days. We are living in uh, hard times. We are living in difficult times. We are living in times where it seems like... uh, So many of the things that were there, so many of the things that were in place um, uh, are gone or are being ignored. And it is a new playing field and new rules in so many ways. And so we find ourselves, Lord, at times in trouble. We find ourselves uh, in, in situations of tremendous pressure. We find ourselves trying to figure out the next step. And... We, unlike you, we do get fatigued. Unlike you, we do get tired. Unlike you, we do get weary. But we are so thankful that you are the self-existent God. We thank you that you have never lost an ounce of energy. And we thank you, Lord, that the trouble situation we find ourselves in, whether it is business trouble or parenting, child trouble, or trouble with our health, or trouble with our finances, with our investments, with um, trying to put some kind of negotiation or deal together, or waiting to hear back from somebody. All these things that drive us nuts. We are so thankful that although this is new to us, this situation we're in, You have always known that we would be here at this moment. Uh, You see us. You've not forgotten us. You, You have known since eternity past how you would relieve us and how you would get us out of it. That helps us to know that. We are just in your gymnasium. And we are doing some very, very difficult repetitions here with this weight and with this pressure. So help us to keep perspective. And tonight, as we continue in our study, uh, drive home to us again the importance of this piece of armor with which we cannot live, with which we cannot exist, with which we cannot fight. Without it, we cannot uh, survive Uh, Our time tonight, we ask that you would make it meaningful. We ask that you would take your word and the power of your word and by the Holy Spirit apply it to where each guy is in his life so that we might be refreshed, that we might be encouraged, that we might be given hope. 
in our day of trouble. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It was C.H. Spurgeon who once said that a Bible that is falling apart is usually owned by someone who isn't. There's tremendous wisdom there. With that in mind, let's turn to Ephesians 6, look at the sixth piece of armor, if you will. We'll start in 10 to get our flow. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes, against the strategies of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth or having put on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, not our righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, when we trust in Jesus alone as our Savior instead of our own works, when we trust in Christ alone, Romans 5.1 kicks in, we have been justified, therefore we have peace with God since we have been justified by faith. Because we trust in Christ, we have been justified. The righteousness of Christ has been transferred to us, and therefore we have been justified legally before God the Father. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and then here we are tonight, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So tonight we are looking at our sword, which is the Bible, which is the Word of God. Interestingly enough, in all of this armor, we only have one offensive weapon, and that's the sword. That's it. You've got one weapon. It's important that you know how to utilize it. It's important that you are familiar with it. It's important that you Practice with it. It's important that uh, it's with you at all times. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. All in Psalm 119. Uh, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. Psalm, Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, is all about the sword. It's all about the word of God. It is a critical piece, it is a critical piece of the full armor of God. So Spurgeon said, a Bible that is falling apart is usually owned by someone who isn't. 
I think back over my life and the people I have known that have Bibles that are well-marked and well-read and uh, taped up and ragged at the edges. Interestingly enough, those people are the people, as I look back over my life, who have had the most influence upon me and for whom I have the utmost respect. Because not only of what they believe, but because of how they live their lives. They were uh, giants. Maybe known to just a few. Those in their family and some friends and some people in their church. But giants. Known by God. Known by the angels. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill, the old prophet-slash-evangelist who I heard when I was in high school, one week, he held some meetings at our church. And uh, Ravenhill, he was, he was kind of one of a kind. But he preached a sermon, when I, was, I remember hearing it when I was in high school, and the sermon was, Is Your Name Known in Hell? And I thought, no, it isn't. But I knew some people whose names were known in hell because they were warriors in spiritual battle and spiritual warfare, and they, and they were extremely effective with the sword. Uh, their lives weren't falling apart. Uh, many of them were in difficult circumstances and under tremendous pressure and dealing with all kinds of adversity, but they weren't falling apart. They were stable. They were uh, reliable. They were steadfast. They were um, predictable. They were predictable. I don't recall a lot of real highs, not a lot of real highs, not real lows, just kind of, just kind of, they just kept marching. They just kept marching. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus, going as before. Uh, That's what they were. So not, not, not a lot of swings, not way up here, not way down here. They were just steady in the word of God, and uh, once again, dealt with a lot of issues. But there was a, uh, there, you know the word I was searching for? You know what there was? There was a contentment. There was a contentment in their lives. Paul said in Philippians, he says, I have learned to be content. I learned. He had to learn it. That helps me. That encourages me. That encourages me. He, he, he didn't say, Christ called me on the road to Damascus, and I've been content every day of my life, every moment, ever since. That's not what he said. What he said was, I have learned. And we're in the process of learning to be content. And as we deal with the struggles and the battles and the warfare of life and the ups and downs and the blind sides and all this stuff, Paul said he could live in prosperity. He could be content in prosperity, and he could be content with with nothing. He's learned his secret. You say, well, how do you learn his secret? Well, it all has to do with the Word of God and the Bible. It has to do with the sword, how you fight the warfare, how you fight the battle. Um, Why is it true that someone who owns a Bible that is falling apart, that person is usually someone who's not falling apart? 
Well, uh, why are they that way? Because they have learned to use the sword in spiritual battle. They are masters of the sword, which is the word of God. Now, if you look up at verse 11, we are told to put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Could I submit to you something that perhaps one of the um, most preeminent schemes, one of the most common schemes of the devil towards the Christian is simply this. He wants to work in such a way in your life and my life that it, through whatever means, through whatever sleight of hand, through whatever deception, that he will get us to put down our swords. He is constantly attempting in my life and in your life to get us to put down our swords. Because when we are without our swords, we, were, we are without our weapon. We have put our weapon down, and you can't do this. You can't put your weapon down in this battle. The battle never ceases. The battle is always raging. It's a 24-7 battle. So his strategy is to get us to put down the sword. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Hebrews chapter 4. What is, what, what, what is it about this sword? For the word of God, I'm in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I mentioned Spurgeon once tonight already. Let me mention him again. Uh, as a young man, he was, he was remarkably gifted. At the age of 19, um, the age of 19, he was called to London to an old um, historic downtown church that was uh, the congregation that was in great decline, a massive building that was, you know, 30, 40% full. Uh, they called this country preacher into town to Canada, and uh, uh, he preached one sermon, and they uh, unanimously asked him to be their pastor. And within months, that building was filled to the rafters, and they had to add another service and another and another. And finally, they could not handle any more people. And uh, the deacons got together and decided, well, we're going to have to expand because we, we, there's just no way we can handle the crowds that wanted to come. Um, the word was that Queen Victoria would disguise herself and come and hear Spurgeon preach. Um, so they had to do about this uh, big uh, construction project, and they had to find a place where they could handle the crowds. And so they went to the Crystal Palace, which had been con constructed for this huge exposition, and it would seat 10,000 people. Um, four hours before Spurgeon uh, was going to preach, four hours before they opened the door, some estimates say there were four to 5,000 people outside lined up to get in to hear a 20, 21-year-old preacher. 
maybe the most gifted preacher in the history of Christianity. A couple of days before, he had gone over to the Crystal Palace just to see the building, to see the structure, to see how it was laid out. It was very dark, couldn't see much, but it was just massive, 10,000 seats. And he wanted to check the acoustics and do a sound check. Now, he didn't have amplification, no microphone. Uh, if you've ever been to the service early, sometimes they'll do a sound check. And uh, so what do you do with it? They put a mic on you, and I'm real creative. I go, testing one, two, three. Now, uh, Spurgeon, they showed him the, the, the platform, they showed him the seat, you know, and he's trying to see what's up there, and he can't see much because it's dark. And he walks up to the center, and with his great booming voice, he doesn't say testing one, two, three. He said, uh, behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. That's what he said for a sound check, just to see the acoustics, what it would be like. And what he didn't know, that way up in the cheap seat, way, way, way up in the highest balcony, up in the corner, was a workman dusting the seats. A man who had been raised in the scriptures, had praying parents, had long since rebelled against Christianity and against Christ, had lived a life of debauchery, had lived a life that was just falling apart and collapsing, and as that man is up there wiping off those seats with his back towards the stage, suddenly this voice rings and reverberates and vibrates through the entire building and through his very being, and he hears that verse. And the Spirit of God convicted him at that moment. He fell to his knees, repented, weeping and called on the name of Christ and asked Christ to be his Savior and asked Christ to forgive him and asked Christ to come into his life. And he was gloriously born again as a result of a sound check of which the content was the sword of the Spirit, which is living and active. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. That cut him to the quick. It cut him to the core. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and uses it. That's what the Spirit of God does. I was reading an article last night uh, at Christianity Today Com, and the article, it's called The Problem with Pizzazz. And the subtitle is, Has Entertainment Replaced Scripture as the Center of Our Worship? Uh, it's an interview with this guy named uh, uh, Swindoll. <laughs> Chuck Swindoll. And they're asking Chuck about his uh, latest book, The Church Awakening. And it's, you got to go online and check it out, ChristianityToday.com. I don't have time to read it all to you, but when you read it, you'll be just really thankful that Chuck is our pastor. He's not about entertainment. He's about the Word of God. Um, they ask him a lot of, it's an interview, they ask him a lot of penetrating questions. Uh, Real straight questions about technology, about media, about video, 
Um, and he's got answers. He's got good answers. Um, he makes a statement in here. Um, he makes a lot of statements in here. I promised myself I'd be brief. Uh, and, and, and what Chuck is talking about is the tendency in our churches to do everything except preach the Word of God. Churches that believe the Bible. Churches that, and their doctrinal statements are absolutely solid and sound. People walk in carrying Bibles. But what's happened is they've gotten away, they have gotten away from the emphasis on the Word of God and they've become entertainment centers. And you visited churches like that, and so have I. And they're big productions. Chuck mentions, he says, I know one church that has 17 people on their media staff and only 12 on their pastoral staff. And then he says this, when a church is spending more of its budget on media than on shepherding, something is out of whack. We have gotten things twisted around. Yes, we do. Anything wrong with media? No. Do you play a lot of videos in your church? No. Here and there, every once in a while, it's very rare. People can watch videos every night of the week. We come to our church to worship. We, 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 we're not at our, we, we, our philosophy ministry is not, we're not here to entertain, we're here to worship. To worship. I'll tell you what, we got churches with, uh, Bigger than this auditorium, a lot of them, with uh, a lot of entertainment, a lot of flash, a lot of sizzle, a lot of entertainment, a lot of light shows. I mean, they're bringing cars on stage, they're bringing the Navy SEALs, they're, I mean, they're bringing them all, whatever they can do, they're bringing them in to get it. Did I ever tell you about the, the, the I just was channel surfing as I do sometimes, when I come back from a trip. I'm just, I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm shot, and I'm just, I'm just, I'm just void. And and I came across this Christian channel, and all I saw, all I saw was this pastor standing in the middle of the stage, and there was a ramp over there, and there's a ramp over there, and there's a guy on a motorcycle. The sucker had evil Knievel, or one of his cousins. And the guy was making, he had some principle that was just, uh, but, but you see, that he, was gonna, he did a motorcycle jump. It was, it was phenomenal. Touch my life. Uh, actually, I mean, it changed my life. My life's never been the same since. I've never been so nauseated in my life. And I thought to myself, Why don't you just give them the Bible? Why don't you just give them the Word of God? Why don't you just give them the truth? We, uh, go to Christianity.com. You'll, you'll find this thing with Chuck. It's worth reading. ChristianityToday.com. Yeah. ChristianityToday.com. You know, for years, we've had, and I remember when this started, I was a young pastor in California, and I remember, to, I remember hearing about these churches, they were uh, seeker-friendly churches. 
And I actually knew a couple of the pastors that had come up with that idea, met, met up, talked to them a little bit. And I understood it. I understood the concept, seeker-friendly. And what they were trying to do, these are pastors, young guys, and they'd grown up in church. And they knew, they knew the evangelical world, they knew the church world backwards and forwards. And they also knew that they'd try to bring their friends to church, and their friends just said, what you, you got to be kidding me, you, this is crazy. I, I'm in a lot of churches around the country. Um, I was recently in a church on a Sunday in a state that shall remain nameless, just so they can identify themselves if they happen to hear this CD. Very sweet people, love Christ, love the Word of God. Um, they started the service, and within two minutes, I was embarrassed for what they were doing. They had a skit. I'll I, I tell you what struck me. It struck me, these people are living in 1955. The, the way they started their service, the, the skit that they did, it was absurd. It was absurd. Not only was it not funny, it was absurd. But it was an attempt to pull off some things. Uh, the humor reminded me of the 50s, only they couldn't do it like Jackie Gleason or like Sid Caesar, the guys that were really good, or Steve Allen. They, could, they couldn't do it, and it just fell flat. But the people that were there, and it was their home church, they loved it because they were of that culture. It was a 1955 church. I noticed in the parking lot all the cars, 55 Fords, 55 Chevys, 55 DeSotos. The carpet obviously had not been changed since 55. These people were living in a time warp. Now, you've been in churches like that. And they just, so someone who's, you know, a normal person, a normal American living in 2001 walks in there and they go, what is this, the Twilight Zone? This doesn't make any, I mean, they're not comfortable. So the guys that started the churches that were quote-unquote seeker-friendly thought, let's not be weird, let's be normal they were solid guys. Let's preach the Bible. But some of the trappings that we have that really aren't, are just, are just our culture and aren't necessary, well, let's lay those aside and let's just be kind of seeker-sensitive, seeker-friendly. So people who come in won't feel weird and out of place. Good concept. They weren't, they weren't, uh, they weren't uh, watering down the Word of God. They weren't watering down the Gospel. They were just trying to make folks comfortable. Nothing wrong with that. But the problem is, is that others come along and always push the limits and take it further than they should. And one of the things that began to grow out of that movement was, by many of these young pastors, what became central, we want to be central, we want to be, we want to be seeker-sensitive. We want to be seeker-sensitive. We want to be seeker-sensitive. And what happened was, uh, there was a shift, and their entire focus became not on God and not on His Word, but became on the seeker and doing everything they could do to make their seeker comfortable, make them feel at home, and do whatever they possibly could do to keep from offending the seeker. You cracking with me so far? <clears throat> By the way, they have a little problem because Psalm 14 says there is no one who seeks God. But if you're not real big into the Bible, you're not going to know that, you see. If all you're into is media and creativity and let's do this and, you know, let's jump this cycle and let's, uh, you know, get Flipper, the, you know, the porpoise and let's get uh, Orca. The, I mean, it was ridiculous. 
So everything began to focus on the seeker. And see, when everything begins to focus on the seeker, and then the next thought is, well, we don't want to do anything to offend the seeker. Well, you got a problem because this book is offensive. And so what happened was, is that this thing kind of morphed, and successive generations of churches and pastors, what they would do, they began to water down the scripture. And they wouldn't teach through a book verse by verse because there was stuff in there that would offend the seeker. So they began to pick and choose, pick and choose, pick and choose. Why? They didn't want to offend the seeker. Uh, we want to reach the seeker. Well, the problem was they were shooting themselves in the foot because the gospel is offensive. Paul says in Corinthians that to some, it, it is an aroma that leads to life. To others, it is an aroma that leads to death. The same gospel. Jesus said in John 8, 31, he said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Right? Not too far from where I live a number of years ago, uh, I drove by a church, it's a fairly new church, but I drove by the church and they had a new car prominently displayed up on a platform out in front of the church with a big red ribbon tied around it. And there was a sign basically saying, it was the summer, uh, basically saying, uh, succinctly enough that you could read it driving by, come join us, we're giving away the car this summer. Yeah. And that verse came to mind, John 8, 31. If you abide in my Chevrolet, then you shall know, you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And once again, I drove by and I thought, man, why don't you just give them the Bible? Oh, can I tell you what they did? The church with the car out front? I'm sure they were well-meaning people. I'm sure they loved the Lord. You know, you know what happened to them? They were deceived by the enemy into dropping their sword. Oh, the seeker-sensitive churches that don't want to offend anybody? Oh, you know what you've just done? You've just put down your sword. You are not declaring the whole counsel of God. Paul said to the elders at Ephesus, what, Acts 19? He'd never see them again. He said, I did not hold back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That is the job of a pastor. It is to be a truth teller. It is to proclaim the good news. And it is offensive that Jesus is the only way to God, that he is the only Savior that he is the one true God. There is no other name given to men under heaven by which may be, men may be saved except the name of Jesus. Christianity is exclusive. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But that's very uncomfortable for us because we want everyone to... We want everyone to get along. We want everyone to be included. We, we, um, so what does the enemy want to do in, in, in the life of the church and these different groups and all that? And in my life, what does he, he wants me to put down my sword. He wants me to drop my sword. Why? Because there is power in the sword. There is power in the word of God. So he is going to go about every device which he can do to keep me from using that sword because it is the sword which can change the hearts of those who are seeking. They're seeking, they're coming because the Spirit of God is drawing them. But how are they going to come? They're going to come through the Word of God. 
Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You just need the Word of God. That's all you need. But if he can get me to a point where I de-emphasize the Word of God and I'm into gimmicks and I'm into uh, uh, entertainment, and as Chuck says, uh, I'm into pizzazz, that's not going to do any good for anybody. They might as well stay home. You can't help the seeker if you don't give them the truth, which is offensive. Well, I want to, you know, I w- listen, it's not you in the first place. You declare the word and the spirit of God does the internal work. That's how it works. We're in trouble. <laughs> what, did Spur- what did Spurgeon say? Spurgeon said, a Bible that's falling apart is usually owned by someone who isn't. Why is it that there are so many churches in America that are falling apart? Although they have big endowments and they have big buildings and they have some people coming, but they're falling apart. Why is that? They're just absolutely falling apart because they've departed from the Word of God. Maybe at one time they were biblical. Maybe at one, there are certain denominations that if I get a call from them, would you come and do a men's conference? My first, my first, uh, my first response is no. No. Now, if you had called me 250 years ago, I would have come. But you guys have departed. You, you don't want me. I remember a guy called me one time and from a big church, denominational church in, in Atlanta. And he said, hey, you know, I just read your book and we want to do a men's thing at our church. And I said, well, okay. And what church are you with? And he told me the church. And I said, yeah, you know, I don't think you want me. And he goes, oh, no, no, we want you to come. And I said, well, are you sure you want, do you, you know anything about me? You know what, you, you, I mean, you know my doctrinal position? He goes, oh, I read your book. I read a couple of your books. I said, really? And, and now, does anybody else know you're inviting me? He said, well, I talk with the men's pastor, and she's just fine with your coming. <laughs> no, that's what he said. I said, well, the men's pastor, and she's fine with me coming. I said, well, man, there you go, right there. You don't want me. You don't want me. No, I'm not good. I said, hey, can I ask you a question real quick? He goes, yeah. I said, you have a women's ministry? He said, yeah. I said, you got a male pastor? He goes, no. I said, why not? If you violate the scripture here, why don't you violate it there? And he laughed because he was with me. He goes, yeah, I'm not sure how much longer I'll be here. I said, can I give you a tip? He goes, yeah. I said, not long. <laughs> not long. Go find a place where they're serious about the word of God. You're not going to reach any men. I mean, they're not interested in truth. Why would you miss around in a place where all they do is rip it apart? They cast doubt. What does the enemy do? In, in, out of, in the garden, in the garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. The garden didn't exist, and Adam and Eve didn't exist. You know that. It's just a metaphor. Now, see, if you believe that, you're in trouble. And if you're in a church that teaches that, you're in big trouble. And you need to find another church. Because it's not a church, it's a country club. There was a garden... 
Adam was created by God. God brought the woman to him. The serpent came, tempted them in the garden. And watch, watch the strategy. And, the, and the, the, you, you know the story. He tempted the woman to eat of the fruit. And she said, but God said, if we eat of the fruit, we'll die. If we eat of the tree, we'll die. And, and, and watch this. And the enemy said, what did he say? You shall not die. That, that, there's the strategy of the devil right there. He cast aspersions on the truthfulness of God's word. He does it to different degrees. He does it at different levels. He does it in different ways, but that's what he does. He is always telling us that the word of God is not true and that the word of God cannot be trusted. So I'm reading an article last night uh, with Robert Sloan, president of Houston Baptist University. Used to be president of Baylor. But they threw him out of Baylor, committed Christian, wanted to turn Baylor into a, a model Christian university based on the word of God. And there's this whole debate going on, you know, creationism versus Darwinism, you know about that. And there's this, uh, uh, there's this movement that's developed called intelligent design. Not necessarily, now a lot of the guys in it, a lot of the guys, not all of them, but a lot of the guys in it are, well, they're all, they use their minds and they use reason. And they have an argument of there's intelligent, you look at DNA, it's what you call intelligent design. Right? Somebody designed that. You look at the uh, solar system, somebody designed that. You look at the law of physics, somebody designed that. No, 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 you, no, 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 there's no, no, there's no designer. Just time and chance. Darren wrote a book called The Origin of the Species. How the chump do you know? Who are you? So there's this scientific movement called intelligent design. So Sloan gets one of the key guys in the country, William Dembski, brings him in to head up this department, and this is going to be one of the benchmarks of, you know, Baylor. And the faculty rebelled, and not only got Dembski out, but they got rid of Sloan. Now, I thought Baylor was supposed to be a Christian university. But you see, there are a lot of guys there, there are a lot of profs there, who don't believe this is the word of God. I'm sure there are some, but there are many who don't. And they just couldn't buy into that intelligent design. Well, you know, well, then let me ask you a question. Where are you in Genesis 1? Well, I believe the Word of God is, in there, you know, is inspired in all matters of, of, of uh, faith and practice. What does that mean? What does that mean? Oh, well, I mean, come on, just come out and tell me. Come on, you got tenure, you're safe. Tell me what you think. I got tenure? You, as of now, you have tenure. Oh, I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. Now, if you ask me before I have tenure, oh, yes, I'll sign the doctrinal statement. Oh, I'm the Word of God, yes. But once I get my benefits, and once I get my lifetime pension, then I'll come clean. That's what happens in these Christian universities. Quote, unquote. No, I don't believe it. I don't believe it's the Word of God. Do I believe Genesis 1? Adam? No, it's mythology. No. There's no literal Adam. There's no literal Eve. What's happened? They dropped their sword on a lot of issues. Okay. 
In the church, we are seriously depart. In the evangelical world right now, we have got a huge issue. We are in a new phase of heresy in the Christian world right now. Um, Let me start with this. How many times do you hear Christians say, how many times do you see someone on tel- Christian television, how many times in dialogue with Christians, just having interaction, someone will say, well, I wasn't sure what, sure what to do, and, 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 and you get that. And, and, then, and then the Lord told me. And then the Lord spoke to me. Okay, now I may be stepping on some toes here. But hear me out. Yeah, I wasn't sure, and then, you know, and the Lord just spoke to me, and the Lord told me, okay, time out. Let's, uh, can, uh, you need to help me with this. So the Lord told you, you said the Lord spoke to me. Yeah, he just spoke to me, and he said, I want you to go ahead. You've heard, you've heard this, haven't you? You've heard this, okay. So he spoke to you. Yeah, yeah, and I just knew I was supposed, okay, well, let me ask you this. Did you hear him? Well, well, I, I didn't hear, a, I didn't hear a, a literal voice, an audible voice. Well, well, then he didn't speak to you. Well, no, no, he, he, he spoke to me in my spirit. What, and, and what does that mean? Well, what it means is, isn't this what it means? Is that you had an impression. Wouldn't that be more accurate to say? And I'm not saying, guys, please understand me. I'm not saying God doesn't lead us. I'm, doesn't, I'm not saying God doesn't give us guidance circumstantially and providentially. I'm not saying that. I know he leads us. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Psalm 32. He does lead us. He does guide us. But we have to be very careful what we say when, oh, the Lord spoke to me and the Lord told me. Okay, wait a minute. You didn't hear an audible voice. Well, I didn't hear an audible voice. And then sometimes they'll say, and then I said to the Lord, and then he said to me, and then I said back to him. And he, okay, come on, come on, come on. Give me a break. This, this is too weird, and this is not authentic. Are you telling me, though, you had an impression that you should do this? Well, yeah. Okay. All right. So, all right. Okay, I get that. You had an impression. Okay. And then what did you do with that? Well, I acted on it because the Lord... How do you know the Lord spoke to you? You know what You know what? First John says? First John says, test the spirits to see if they be of God. To be of God. The Christians at Berea were more noble than the Christians at Thessalonica because they tested these things, what Paul preached, by the Scriptures to see if they were true. That's somewhere in the book of Acts. I don't remember where, but it's in there. So the Christians at Berea heard it. They matched what Paul said up to the standard of the Word of God because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. All Scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching. Reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The, the word adequate means completely furnished, that you may be completely furnished adequately for every good work. Every good work which God wants to do, every process of spiritual growth, with he, growth that he wants to bring into your life and my life, he will do through the word of God, working in tandem with the spirit of God, because the spirit and the word always work together. So if you have an impression, you know, in 1 Timothy 4, it says in the last days, many will fall away. I think we're set up for that right now in the evangelical church. You know why many will fall away? Because they'll pay pay attention, it says, to doctrines of demons. 
spoken by prophets whose consciences are seared as with a branding iron. They're evil, godless men. But these men will say things, or they're persuasive, or they're charismatic, or they're winsome, and people will just, they'll listen. Oh, well, the Lord must be, the Lord must be. And they don't test it. They don't test it according to the Word of God. Am I making any sense? I can say the Lord told me when I'm in this book. You know what the Lord told me? He told me I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm just saying we have swung so far that way. And it's interesting to me, we are living in an age, quite frankly, among biblical Christians, among quote-unquote biblical Christians. Uh, Barna, who's the gallop of the evangelical world, uh, Barna has done surveys, and he basically says roughly about 40%, roughly 40% of those who call themselves evangelical Christians don't believe that Jesus is the only way to God. You're not an evangelical Christian. No. No. Um, So what books are Christians buying right now? Well, one of the top sellers, in fact, the number one seller right now, here's the number one seller. It's a book about, I haven't read the book, but I've read reviews on it. There's about a four-year-old boy who had some kind of... uh, emergency surgery, was in and out of a coma. When he finally came to consciousness, he told his father, who is a pastor, he started telling his father all the things that he saw in heaven. His father was so taken by these things that he wrote them down. Uh, It was submitted to Thomas Nelson, and it's the number one best-selling Christian book in America right now. What a four-year-old boy told his father about what he saw in heaven. That's what Christians in our day and age are reading. And my question is, has this been tested by the Word of God? When were four-year-old boys supposed to teach? The older are to teach the younger. Let not a novice become an elder. I'm sorry, but four-year-olds don't teach. So are you questioning the experience? Yeah. Yeah, I am, actually. Based on the Word of God. Not questioning motives or intent. I don't know their hearts. I'm sure they're... I I don't know. But I have to tell you, whatever I hear, whether it's it's Chuck on Sunday morning, or David Jeremiah on the radio, or Billy Graham, or whoever it is, whoever you hear, you got to test it by the Word of God. Because the Word of God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of, it's the word of God. Okay. Oh, there's a, Mary had a, a booklet last night when I came in. She said, have you heard about this devotional? And I said, actually, I read a review on it. That's what I do, I read reviews. I don't have a job, I just read. I said, yeah, I read a review on that in World Magazine. It's called uh, Jesus Calling, the Jesus Calling devotional. Young woman has written this devotional. Now, there are some great devotionals. There are some classic devotionals. Uh, Oswald Chambers wrote one, My Utmost for His Highest. It's absolutely saturated and drenched in the Word of God. Is it not? Have you ever seen Morning and Evening by C.H. Spurgeon? Now, there's a devotional. 
saturated. He'll have a verse, and then there'll be a, a brief, thoroughly drenched, saturated application of the verse. You can read first thing in the morning, and then there's another one that night, because it's morning and evening. Take you through the whole year. There's the verse. Lay out the verse, then there's a comment on the verse. Quick application, prayer, good stuff. It's good stuff. What's interesting about this book, which, and this young woman actually has, I saw two of her devotionals in the top five this afternoon. What's interesting, and Mary had the book because someone told her about it, and she was looking at it. What's interesting is this devotional has no scripture. None. There's no scripture. What it is, apparently, is this woman who has written down her impressions of what Jesus is calling her to do. And that's the devotional. Oh, and then at the bottom, the one I looked at last night, a couple of pages, there in, in very small type at the bottom is, is, is a scripture verse or maybe two. It's not lined out. You've got to go find the Bible and go look it up yourself. They didn't have room to put the scripture in. Can I tell you what they did, whoever published that? They put down the sword. They just put down the sword. And then you got old Rob Bell running around. Cool, hip, trim, uh, cute, funny, evasive. Won't give you a straight answer about anything. Pastors this big church in Michigan. And all he does is ask questions. Do you think God would really... Is there really a hell? Is there really a place of eternity? Do you think God, do you think, what about Gandhi? What about Gandhi? The sucker walked around in a diaper all day. What about him? <laughs> they always go to Gandhi. You know, Churchill could not stand Gandhi because of his moral character. He felt he was a deceiver and a liar. And there's pretty good evidence he was a sexual pervert. Everybody, oh, what about Gandhi? What about Gandhi? What about him? He's a sinner, wicked heart, just like you and me. So Rob Bell's got a book out. Everyone's going to be saved. Well, I didn't say that. Well, actually, you did say it. Oh, there, I didn't say that. There's no hell. Well, actually, I mean, you read your own book, man. That's sure the impression you're given. This thing is so nuanced, even you don't apparently understand what you're saying. Why don't you contend, why don't you contend earnestly for the faith? You're not contending for anything. And once again, one of the top sellers. My gosh, you look at what Christians, quote unquote, are reading, and you shake your head. You know, what I'm, you know what I see? They're putting down the sword left and right, left and right. You're just putting down the sword. Are you guys still with me? I just thought we'd go kind of light tonight. We're finishing up. You know, we'll just go out here on a positive... Martin Lloyd-Jones... 1969, said these words. Now, understand this. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a brilliant medical doctor. He was so outstanding that he was hand-chosen in England by the physician to the queen to be that physician's protege, which put him in line to be the next physician to the queen. He was brilliant. Graduated from medical school at 16. Brilliant. Left at 27 to preach the gospel because he dealt with all of the gentry and all of the royal family and their acquaintances, the people that everyone wanted to emulate, the people that were at the wedding this weekend, 
the guests with the weird hats, all those people that had everything. He dealt with them. He worked with them. He got to know them. And he absolutely saw the wretchedness of their lives and the condition of their heart and realized that he could treat them with this or this antibiotic. But what they needed was the gospel of Jesus Christ to save their souls. And he went into the ministry, left his medical practice, and went to a coal mining town in Wales to preach the gospel. And then eventually, 15 years later, came to London. I mean, this man knows science. Okay? Listen to what he says. 69. He says, The Christian church in her utter folly during this present century has been recognizing a new authority. And the new authority, of course, is the man of knowledge, the man of culture, and particularly the man of scientific knowledge. And the church has been at great pains to do everything she can do to please this new authority. The man of learning must never be offended, and in order to please him and duplicate him, the church has been ready to take things out of the Bible. She rejects and throws out the whole of the first three chapters of Genesis, much of the other history, throws out all the miracles. She'll throw out anything in order to make her message pleasing and acceptable to this new authority, the man of knowledge, the man of learning, the man of science. That was written in 69. He wouldn't believe where we are today. So why are we where we are today? Not just, <laughs> you know, not, not just the church. I mean, do you ever wonder why our country is in such bad shape? Do you ever why Europe's in such bad shape? In Europe is where they had the Reformation. It's where the gospel broke through in Germany, in Switzerland. Uh, England, England was falling apart. It was, England was going to go into moral anarchy like France. And God raised up the Wesley brothers and he raised up uh, George Whitfield. And, and many historians say it was the great awakening under the preaching of the Wesleys and Whitfield that changed England from the heart and saved them from the French Revolution. But why did that happen? And where is England today? And where is... Uh, Where's Germany? And where's, uh, there was a movement that started in the 1800s in Germany called Higher Criticism. Should have been called Demonic Criticism. The whole thing was, oh, God didn't say that. He didn't do that. No, it didn't happen. It didn't, okay. It's demonic. Okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to, see Spurgeon, are you guys still there with me? Okay. Because see, Spurgeon said, a Bible that is falling apart is usually owned by someone who isn't. That's just not true of individuals. It's true of nations, and it's true of civilizations. Why are we as a nation, why do we have, uh, why were we so shocked this weekend? I, w I was shocked. I was shocked when we actually sent the seals in. There must have been a typo. We sent them in, and somehow the enemy was killed. What, what has become of us? I mean, were you shocked? I was shocked. I think a lot of people were shocked. Because it's out of character. Now, that wouldn't have been out of character in World War II. It wasn't out of, you know, before then, or the Korea War, 
or Vietnam, well, we were starting to waver in Vietnam. You know, we sent guys in there with no intention of winning. Apparently, a lot of guys, you know, gave up their lives and nobody was backing them. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. How did, what happened to us? What happened to us? All right. Now, David Wells is a professor. This guy is a brilliant biblical thinker. David Wells. He has a book called God in the Wasteland. It's one of three books that he has written that talks about the loss of authority of the Word of God in the church and how we're trying to become modern, we're trying to become like the world. It's brilliant stuff. It's, I'm going to give you just a little bit of historical background, what happens and what has happened to us. So I'm going to read this quickly, okay? And you've got to think, and you've and you got to kind of juice yourself up. So if you've got a steroid shot there, just go ahead and do it. Because this is worth listening to, okay? And then I'm going to make some application. Western society has historically been held together by three things, tradition, authority, and power. They long served as essential garments, but of late they have been dropping away, leaving it exposed and indecent. Of the three, tradition was the first to go, although its demise was in many ways connected with that of authority. Now stay with me here. We have already noted how the institutions that once preserved tradition by passing on the accumulated wisdom, lore, beliefs, and values of one generation to the next have been overturned by mod modernity. Our families and our schools have become so enamored of the ostensible virtues of pluralism or intimidated by the prospect of failing to be value neutral that they no longer even make a token effort to give the next generation moral instruction. The result is that rather than being introduced and connected to, to what we would call traditional values, biblical values, the children of modernity—I can't say that word—modernity. That's not how you pronounce it. That's not how I'm going to say it. The children of modern, anyway, the children of nonsense are lifted away from them like so much flotsam on a rising tide. All right, now stay with me. It is the conceit of modernity. Modern, let's pray. Modern. Modernity. It is the conceit of this way of thought that the past is nothing more than a dead weight, that constant innovation is the only key to a better life and richer truth. At the same time that our society is discounting the accumulated wisdom of the past, it is finding that we can no longer recognize appeals to any sort of authority or any transcendent realm in which these appeals might be grounded, they have vanished from sight. These changes are evident in a, in a variety of ways in the areas of art, literature, philosophy, and politics, but they all follow a basic pattern. First, the Christian theism, the Christian God on which Western societies were built, was replaced by idealism of one kind or another. This still had a transcendent interest, but it was no longer theistic, not based on God. Then this idealism collapsed and was replaced by humanism. Man is at the center of everything. At first, this humanism sustained elevated ethical and aesthetic interest, but this could not last because it had no durable conceptual base. In the political arena, for, answer, for, for example, it gave way to various totalitarianisms, Lenin and Marx on the left, Hitler and Mussolini on the right. These individuals have now passed, but the moral vacuity on which they built remains not only in politics, but in many other aspects of life as well. You guys still with me? This is what your kids are getting every day. The forces that once bound Western culture together have thus been reduced to one. Tradition and authority have scarcely any remaining effect. Only power remains. 
It is power alone that directs our corporate life, for instance. Power severed from any moral order that might have contained or corrected it. You think of the financial crisis we've been through. There was power, but there was no morality. There was no deism. There was no theism. Power severed from any moral order that might have contained and corrected it, severed from the values of the past, might have informed it. In the absence of any consensus about what is right, we have turned to law to settle our disputes. The duties that were once undertaken by family, school, and church have now fallen into the hands of lawyers and bureaucrats who are preoccupied solely with the care and maintenance of networks of inviolable procedures. It is a terrible thing, Solzhenitsyn said, to live in a society where there is no law. It is also a terrible thing to live in a society where there are only lawyers. And that's where we are. In almost every experience we have with the modern world, Think of your kids and grandkids. Not only in the realm of science, but in every area of life, from the world of business to the world of television game shows, one thing is axiomatic. The only acknowledged authority is that of private preference. In the 19th century in particular, philosophers, novelists, and artists made numerous attempts to establish a system of morals based on something other than the existence of God or his revelation. These experiments were all the work of a small avant-garde. However, what has changed now is that the whole of society has become avant-garde. Then he goes to the centrality of truth. Give me two more minutes. Am I making sense? I mean, is he making sense? It explains where we are. What is he saying? You know why we're messed up? Because somewhere along the way, our nation, whose laws were based on the word of God, we put down the sword. He then talks about the centrality of truth and the revelation of God in the Bible. God is the great knower of life after all. Watch this. The fact that his word is now so silent, that it has so small a part to play in the church's worship, understanding, and spiritual nurture goes a long way towards explaining why God and his holiness is also a stranger to the church. And so it is that God is disappearing from his church, being edged out by the self, naked and alone, as the source of all mystery and meaning. Last paragraph. Without this word of God, the sword of the Spirit, okay, here we go, watch the application. Without this transcendent word of God in its life, the church has no rudder, no compass, no provisions. Without the word, it has no capacity to stand outside its culture, to detect and wrench itself free from the seductions of the modern world. Without the world, the church has no meaning. It may seek substitutes for meaning and committee work, relief work, and various other church activities, but such things cannot fill the role for very long. Cut off from the meaning that God has given, faith cannot offer anything more by way of light in our dark world than what is offered by philosophy, psychology, or sociology. Cut off from God's meaning, the church is cut off from God. It loses its identity as the people of God in belief and practice and in hope. Cut off from God's word, the church is on its own, left to live for itself, by itself, upon itself. It is never lifted beyond itself above its culture. It is never stretched or tried. It grows more comfortable, but is the comfort of anesthesia, of a refusal to pay attention to the disturbing realities of God's truth. That's why we are where we are. Okay.
let me give you three things about the Word of God. See, there's nothing we can do about the, the denominations and the, and the liberal churches and the nonsense books in the Christian world. All I can do is, all I can do is, is me. That's all I can do. Let me give you three things about the Word of God. Okay? Number one, read the Word of God. Read it. Get a Bible reading calendar. I'm just throwing that. You guys are always saying this. You're always saying read the Bible. You know why? Read the Bible. Jesus said, for, for, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother. He did say that in Genesis. All that has nothing to do with the point I'm trying to make. I have the wrong verse. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is in the word of God. Deuteronomy 32 says, it is not an idle word for you, it is your life. If it's your life, you better put the word of God in your, in your heart and in your soul and in your mind. This is the word of God. It contains your, uh, your vitamins, your minerals, your C, your D. You've got to have D. Did you know that? You getting enough D? You better check that. You're going to get bone loss. You're going to have all kinds of stuff. You need your antioxidants. Chromium, selenium, potassium, you need your amino acids. It's all right here. Now, do you wonder why the enemy doesn't want you in this book? You can't fight sin without this book. You can't stand without this book. You can't fight off temptation without this book because it is your sword. So he's going to do everything he can do to distract you from the word of God. So you know what you do? You set a time and you set a place and you get some kind of calendar. And I mean, email me, I'll send you one. Or go online and you just read through the Bible. Just read through it. Just read. Become familiar with the Word of God. Here's the second thing you ought to do. Memorize the Word of God. So oh, I don't know how to memorize. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. You know how to memorize. Went to a dance looking for romance. Saw Barbara Ann, so I thought I'd take a dance. Barbara Ann, ba-ba-ba-ba. Let's stand and sing that together. I will get all my lonely people. Isn't it amazing? Those Beatles song comes on, and you start singing all the words. Why? Because you were a reprobate. <laughs> and so was I. And they were great songs. They were fun. Don't tell me you can't memorize. You just got to get familiar with it. So, so, how do you memorize scripture? Let me tell you. All right, you got post-it notes? Get three post-it notes. If you, mem if you were to memorize one verse just each month, that'd be 12 verses in the next year that you got in your heart. So that's a lot of verses. So actually, it's not. Just start with one. Get three post-it notes. Take a verse. You, 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 I mean, take a verse out of Ephesians 6. Take that uh, Hebrews uh, 4 verse about the Word of God. And what do you do? Put them on three different post-it notes. Slap one on your mirror and leave it there for 30 days. Every time you shave, you see that verse. The Word of God is living and, what is it? It's living and active. Living and active. It's living and active. It's living and active. Okay. That's day one. Then you come back and you say, living and active, sharper than any, what? Sharper than two Okay. Just shave. Oh, and then put another one on your dashboard in your car. Oh, and then put another one on your desk somewhere. Okay. And then three different times, you know, today you're going to be seeing that. I guarantee you, in 30 days, you're going to know that verse, aren't you? You're going to know a Beatles song and you're going to know a Bible verse. 
And if you do it every month, oh, and, you know, and if you really want to get with it, you can memorize one a week. I'm not putting you in a guilt trip. I'm just saying, you can do this. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. Well, why not put the word of God in your heart? You shall love the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 6, with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your, what? Heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way. Well, I don't know why I have such trouble in the Christian life. You don't have the word of God in your heart. Now, let me tell you this. You put the word of God in your heart, you're going to have more trouble. So I'm not going to lie to you. But you got trouble either way. You might as well have the word of God in your heart. Have something to fight with, right? Okay? So you read the word of God. You memorize the word of God. Oh, here's the next thing. You meditate on the word of God. Joshua 1. He told Joshua, you shall meditate on these words. You don't veer to the left or the right. You meditate on the word of God. What does it mean to meditate? You just kind of got it on the back burner. You memorize scripture? Uh, I, I, I read an article to you last week on the passage, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and at the right time he will exalt you, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. I've known that verse for a long time. But I've always focused on the casting all your cares upon him. You know what I've been meditating on this week? Humble yourself. Every time I get a little stressed, every time I get a little worried, every time I get a little anxious, you know what I do? I just say, you know, Lord, help me to humble myself. You're the mighty God. You are the mighty God. I don't see any way out here. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have a stinking clue. I just, you know, Lord, I, I, I just humble myself. Would you take care of it for me? Would you steer me? Would you navigate me? I can't make sense of this. So I just humble myself. That's what I've been meditating on. That means you just think about it. Do I think about it 24-7? No, I got other stuff I got to do. But throughout the day, I'm like, you know what? I got to humble myself. Don't go, go, don't go down that road. Don't get all anxious. Lord, I humble myself under your great power. I don't have to fear. You're my father. What am I doing? I'm meditating on what's true. You, does this make any sense? Oh, and then can I tell you something? When the battle's raging and the heat's intense and the bullets are whizzing by you, you won't fall apart. Because the word of God is your sword and you got a firm grip and you're using it. Three times Jesus was tempted by Satan and every single time in Matthew 4, he responded with the word of God that he had memorized and was in his heart. Go thou and do likewise. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for the power of your word. I thank you that we're in a church that stands on the word of God. I thank you that we have a pastor who stands on the word of God. And we thank you for so many other faithful pastors in, in, uh, in the Metroplex that stand on the word of God, that teach it without apology. You, you have 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And we thank you for those faithful men. 
Uh, give us a love for the Word of God. Some of us, Lord, are not readers, and you understand that. It's hard, but we're, we're just, that's not really our gift. But we live in an age where we can sure hear the Word of God. We can get it on an iPod. We can work out and listen to it. We can drive and hear John 6 coming over. We're very blessed people to have this technology if we use it in the right way. So give us a hunger for your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Steve. Sir. Look at the, the wood carving behind